This is a WTOP original podcast. From Podcast One. Coming up in this episode of Target USA. You know, I woke up in the middle of the night. Um, something clearly terrible had happened to me. I had an extreme case of, of vertigo, of tinnitus ringing in the ears. I thought I was going to be sick. Mark Polymoropoulos. He's a retired senior operations officer from the CIA. And you've heard his story here before on Target USA. There's a strong possibility that I was hit with, you know, what we are, uh, uh, what, what a lot of uh, people believe is a directed energy weapon that is being used uh, against U.S. officials uh, around the world. He's got a brand new book out called Clarity in Crisis, Leadership Lessons from the CIA. And in addition to talking about that important book, he's going to talk about these attacks that are still, according to him, going on. And it certainly has, a, has continued to this day. He praises the CIA for stepping up, but he's not so kind to the State Department. Um, I think State Department does not has not put the, the resources and the personnel towards the problems. Coming up on this episode of Target USA. The National Security Podcast. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile capable of reaching the whole of the United States. Dangerous terrorist. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to seek an attack. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA, the National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. There are, on July 14, 2021, 137 stars on the CIA Memorial Wall. Mark Polymeropoulos, in the 26 years that he worked at the CIA, got to know some of the people behind some of those stars and he pays homage to them, even though he himself, retired now, continues to suffer from his sacrifice working for CIA. But he wrote a book called Clarity in Crisis, Leadership Lessons at the CIA, and we talked to him about it. First, tell me why you wrote that book. Sure, so uh, JJ, first, thanks uh, thanks for having me on. Um, So I retired in July of 2019, and I wanted to do two things. One is I wanted to talk about the intelligence business with the American people. I think that I always thought that uh, there were so many misnomers. So I wanted to talk about institution, about the CIA and about the intelligence community in general um, that I feel is indispensable uh, you know, to, the, to the defense of the nation. And number two, I wanted to talk about leadership because at the end of my career is when I actually felt that I became a really good leader. Uh, and I realized that I was comfortable in operating in really in environments where there was a lack of situational awareness, what I call the gray. Uh, and I was really, I was happy to do so. And so I wanted to kind of talk about the principles uh, and and, and some of the things that I learned over the years that allowed me uh, uh, to do that. And so I decided to write this book, and it was, a, it was really an amazing experience. All right. So um, what are those lessons in a nutshell or the main ones that you can share that came out of this, this uh, book, this research, your career? Sure. So, so first of all, clarity in crisis, what it means is, is to be able to make decisions when you have a lack of situational awareness. You know, you want to be the one who raises their hand when times are tough. Um, you want to have that ability to have no fear, you know, when others want to want to want to flee. And that was so much of our life at CIA. That was so much of of my career, you know, particularly in, in, in decision making under crisis situations. 
So what I did is I came up with principles that I realized that I employed that allowed me to do so. And there, there are nine principles altogether and they all build on each other. So ultimately what I want to do is, is, you know, talk to my readers, talk to the American people um, or really, you know, audiences around the world uh, and saying how they can go about in this building block approach to get there. So I start off with a principle, which I call the glue guy or, or the glue gal. And that's the idea that, that, you know, there are indispensable members of your team that you have to identify. And perhaps they're not the ones who are the superstars. And you have to cultivate these members. And that's really important. Um, so, you know, it, it, in the military, it would be the logisticians. You know, in my world, it would be the support of, of intelligence. It would be the support officers. But you really learn in terms of, you know, how to be a good leader uh, when, you, when you highlight these individuals. When you, when you, for example, not only celebrate, you know, successes with them, ensure they are, they are rewarded as well, but also involve them in the planning processes. So the glue guy or the glue gal is, is kind of a principle that I think a lot of people will relate to. And in the book, I, I, I challenge the reader after each of these principles to, to look at look at themselves, look at their own business unit or their own lives and identify such individuals. And, uh, and that's how you really uh, can prosper and grow as a leader. All right. So um, what was the single most important or a couple of the most important developments in your career that made you the leader that you were? Ah, what a great question, JJ, because ultimately, and the book has so much to do with, you know, about, about dealing with adversity. You know, I, I think that the greatest trait of an intelligence officer is to have some humility. And so this book is not about, you know, thumping my chest, um, about saying all the great things I did. It, 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 as a matter of fact, the book is so much about how to deal with failure. Um, in fact, failing is okay because you learn from it, but ultimately failure is not. And so, you know, one of my principles I talk about is adversity is the PED, the performance enhancing drug to success. Um, because ultimately, it's how you you know how you deal with adversity. I mean, that's going to that's that's going to define how you are as a leader, really as a person. Um, and so, adversity has to be your super fuel on how you grow. And so, there are so many analogies, so many stories from my world of intelligence special operations. There's also great sports stories. I mean, Michael Jordan got cut from his high school basketball team. I, I think he did okay in the end. And so, so ultimately, it's it's this idea of of failing and learning from the failure. Uh, uh, which I think is is really important to embrace, um, and I think it'll really resonate with uh, you know with uh, with the American people. All right. So the CIA is not an easy place to work uh, under any circumstances, um, considering the kind of work that has to be done, at least out in the field, which sure. is where you were. Um, and you don't need to be an expert to know that. Um, <clears throat> and one of the really most moving things to me about working out there in the environment that people like you and some of the people you work with work in is that there may be situations that happen where you may lose your life and nobody would ever know about it except your family. Uh, and nobody can know about it for a specific amount of time. The stars on the wall say a lot about that. When you go to the CIA, if you're ever privileged enough to do that, tell us a little bit about your thoughts about those stars on the wall and what they oh, mean boy. to you. So, you know, the Memorial wall is a sacred uh, sacred place for us, you know, and it's when you walk into CIA headquarters, you know, it's on the right, you pass it every day. I think there's, I believe there's 137, uh, uh, stars on the wall right now. And, you know, given what we've, what we've had to do over the last 20 years in the counterterrorism wars, you know, I, I know a lot of names on that wall. I've, I've been involved in operations where, you know, officers have, have lost their lives. Uh, and, and, and in some terrible cases, I was responsible for some of this as well. And so, it's very meaningful, very emotional uh, uh, for me, but I think it just, you know, it also signifies what it was like to be a, a CIA officer and, and in particular, you know, my, my trade as, as an operations officer, because we really were 
on the tip of the spear, but you do so in the shadows. And so, you know, our, our successes are never heralded. Our failures sometimes are, are you know, uh, are splashed all over the front page of, of major, major newspapers, major media. But ultimately, it's a bunch of men and women who have this incredible, you know, desire to serve and are selfless uh, in their service. And so, you know, the memorial wall is is just extraordinarily important. I'll tell you that as we look even today at the Afghan withdrawal, U.S. forces that withdrawal from Afghanistan, which ultimately means the U.S. intelligence community withdrawal. You know, there's a lot of mixed feelings because we put a lot of blood, sweat and tears into that place. Yeah. And then certainly I don't want to see it turn into another terrorist safe haven. But of course, I also see the sacrifices that the men and women of the CIA, uh, you know, have, have have gone through for it. So, yeah, a lot of emotions on that wall. It's, it's something that I think every CIA officer, when they go in, you know, they, they look to their right and they see that. And, you know, they're, you know, maybe their heart skips a beat a little bit. You know, you wrote in your in the introduction of your book, I have led thousands of men and women of the CIA for the last two and a half decades in numerous clandestine operations and covert actions. And due to the nature of my job, I've spent my life in the shadows. None of these operations were attributed to me or my teams at the agency, but the results of our work landed on the front pages of the New York Times and the Washington Post, and some were covered by live by every media on the planet. So as you look back at that, at the impact of your life and the lessons that you learned during your time at the CIA and look at what the CIA is facing now, are those lessons being employed by others? Sure. And I think they are, you know, I mean, there's a, there's a, there's kind of a poor tendency sometimes for the formers, those of us who have retired or left to kind of criticize the current crowd. And I don't believe in doing that. I mean, I think that, you know, the CIA has an enormously complicated mission now. So clearly we have to evolve and adapt. Um, these are things such as, you know, moving on from the, the 20 years of, of counterterrorism operations to going back to you know, what, you know, what we call near peer competition with Russia and really with China. And China is going to be our greatest, greatest strategic um, you know, adversary. And so, and so we have to make a shift and a pivot, but I'm confident that the CIA will, you know, one of the, one of the great things about at the end of my career um, and this is a time where you get senior and so you're doing a lot of you know, budget and resources and personnel issues. But I love meeting the men and women who walked in the door. So when I was the deputy chief of operations for the Near East Division, then I, when I was the acting chief of operations over the Europe Eurasian Mission Center, there's a lot of people. This is covering a lot of territory. Uh, but I would meet with every new officer um, because I wanted to tell them exactly what I what I spoke about in the book, that, you know, they're, that they're the ones you know standing on the ramparts and they have the ability to, to, you know, to not only witness, but help shape and, and, and make history. And so. I think, you know, we're, we're in good hands with the new director, with Bill Burns, um, you know, obviously a, a, a consummate national security professional, uh, but really big challenges ahead. And I, and I think that, you know, we're going to see, you know, a shift, you know, perhaps our officers are not going to be learning, you know, Arabic as they did, you know, in, uh, after 9-11, they're going to be learning Chinese, but, uh, but they have to, we have to as, as a country. So I think, I think, you know, the men and women do employ a lot of these lessons that I talk about, you know, leadership lessons uh, in my book. There are a lot of good leaders there. And and I'll tell you, and I'll say it over and over again, and you, and you see it in the book too, you know, that, that, that idea of humility, that idea of, of you know, uh, uh, of, of facing adversity and learning from it, that really is, is endemic. And, and this is a good thing, you know, throughout, throughout CIA, because the intelligence profession is hard um, and, uh, and you can never give up. Uh, and, and, you know, ultimately, as in, you know, one of my leadership principles, I talk about adversity is the PED to success. You know, we're going to fail, but that we're going to use that as our super fuel. Uh, and, and we're going to move forward. So I, I have confidence in the agency, uh, you know, uh, moving forward into the future. And uh, and I think I, I do think Bill Burns is the right the right man to lead it. 
We'll talk some more about those, some of those challenges before the, before we sure. go today. But I want to ask you, uh, get into something that you talked about on this very podcast some months ago. And that is something that took place, I think it was in 2017, you were in Moscow, uh, and um, you got sick. Tell us, remind us of what that story was, so we we can be accurate about it. And uh, I'd like to ask you a couple of questions on the other side of your... Sure, of course, JJ, and I know we did talk about it before. So December 2017, as I I made, you know, what ultimately turned out to be a faithful trip to Moscow. At that time, I was the deputy operations chief for for the Europe-Eurasia Mission Center. I was going to... Uh, to visit the embassy to see our ambassador there, um, uh, and and in fact also to meet with Russian government officials. You know, even through the worst days of the Cold War, the you know the various intelligence the, the intelligence services certainly had liaison relationship, and we still do. <coughs> and so, so ultimately, I, you know, I, I went for a ten day trip, and and uh, it was you know early on in 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 the visit, I you know I woke up in the middle of the night. Um, something clearly terrible had happened to me. I had an extreme case of, of vertigo, of tinnitus, ringing in the ears. I thought I was going to be sick. Um, and, you know, it, it, it turns out, you know, there's a there's a strong possibility that I was hit with, you know, what we are, uh, you know, what, what a lot of uh, people believe is a directed energy weapon that is being used uh, against U.S. officials uh, around the world. And it certainly has, a, has continued to this day. And so ultimately, I was I was pretty sick after that. Um, that forced my my not my early retirement, but I was eligible to retire in July of 2019. Again, I was at the pinnacle of my career, my profession. I was in line to to go further, I was, and I say this modestly, but I was a you know highly decorated officer and the director of operations, known as one of the best leaders in the organization. But I couldn't go to work anymore. Um, I had splitting headaches, which I still have to this day, uh, and uh, and ultimately I had to had to retire and then start this kind of this this long journey of trying to get healthcare. Um, uh, and ultimately, I did uh, finally after going public and really very difficult situation. But I ended up. Uh, in January of this year, going to Walter Reed's National Intrepid Center of Excellence, their traumatic brain injury center. And so I'm feeling better now, um, but I still have a long, long journey to go. So my career ended on not, you know, not the way that I had certainly hoped. Um, but, uh, but, you know, that, that's my reality now. And it's what I have to accept. Yeah. You know, one thing I'd like to make clear for our listeners, you talk about the, the level that you had achieved in terms of um, your rank in, in the in the Central Intelligence Agency. And uh, I, want, I would point out, and you mentioned this in your book, that you had essentially achieved the military equivalent, mili- mil- military grade of a four-star general. So that's how far along you were in this process. Uh, of working your career and, and, and climbing the ladder there and having to leave uh, because of this illness. And I heard you mention this thing that happened to you continues to this day. How do you know that? Right. Well, you know, I have to be careful on this. Of course, you know, I have my secrecy agreement that I have with the organization. So I'm going to, I'm going to refer a lot to press reports and we just kind of leave it at that. But, you know, it, you know, you, you, I, I, there is, there is, there has been a lot in the media about other uh, U.S. Uh, intelligence officials who have been afflicted. Um, by this, you know, is, uh, subsequent to my uh, to my issue in uh, in December of 2017, um, and and so you know, I think the New York Times has reported there's 130 U.S. government personnel overall. Um, what the number is, I don't know, but but you know, I'm I'm confident in in saying that the, these attacks are are continuing. I've I've heard senators say this publicly, mm. um, the members of the Senate Select Committee of Intelligence, and then of course the members in the House and the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence have said that publicly as well. And so, you know, this is a serious national security challenge um, for not only the intelligence community, but for the U.S. government, because our, uh, you know, our diplomats, intelligence officers, military personnel are being hurt overseas by 
by what is obviously uh, you know something you know pretty nefarious that is that is occurring. And so this is a challenge for the for the intelligence community. I know that you know Director Burns, from his confirmation hearing to all of his public statements, um, uh, is uh, is very keen on on getting to the bottom of this. There's been statements from the National Security Council, from the White House, uh, you know, press secretary as well. And so this is an issue that's uh, that's going to be forefront um, on our on our collection and ultimately on on our foreign policy because. You know, if and when we determine who did this, uh, uh, an adversary, you know, that's that's a that, that's a there's some serious policy decisions that, that are going to come after this, because in my view, you know, this is an act of war that's being perpetrated against U.S. government personnel. Back to that in a second. Um, but your treatment, um, you've been getting treatment for it for a while um, before we started talking about this months ago. I'm sure. curious. I'm curious to know one. <clears throat> I'm curious to know one, how your treatment is going. And two, you mentioned that. 130 some cases are being reported by some media. How are they keeping up with this? First, your first, how's your treatment going? Sure, JJ, and, and you know, thanks very much. You know, you have you and I have talked over the months, and you've always, you've always asked me how I'm doing. So I, I, I you know, I pe- appreciate that on a personal level. Look, I, 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 I will get emotional talking about the, you know, the Walter Reed's National Intrepid Center of Excellence. It's called NICO. So this is the world's leading traumatic brain injury program. And in essence, after I went public and and was almost begging the agency for for healthcare, they did relent after a lot of public pressure. So in January of 2021 of this year, I went for a one month program. It's called their intensive outpatient program where for, for 30 days, for 10 hour days, um, I was seen by 18 different specialists. And ultimately it's a program designed to make you feel better. And so what was really interesting about this um, was that was that not only did it give me, give me hope, but it gave me a lot of tools. And it's, you know, it's, of course they do things like, you know, all sorts of imaging, whether it's MRIs or, or others, but but what what NICO does, and this has been really successful in the special operate special operations community in particular, but for the military as a whole, is they 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 they, they give you tools and a lot of it's alternative medicine. So you know we're doing you know deep breathing techniques or meditation or you know there's there's sleep studies. Fifty percent of traumatic uh, TBI patients actually develop sleep apnea. Um, uh, there's there's incredible therapy programs, an art therapy program where where you design masks. Uh, this has cured helped cure hundreds of of our wounded warriors because ultimately. And, and I was, incidentally, and this is important, I was diagnosed formally by, by Walter Reed as, as having a traumatic brain injury. It's pretty extraordinary after CIA denied this for so long. Uh, uh, and so, so it really has helped me, you know, and heal from kind of my, my chronic pain, but also the moral injury, the moral injury that I suffered in not being believed for a long time. So I, I can't say enough about the men and women of, uh, uh, of NICO. Um, and, uh, and, you know, and, and I'll add that, that director Burns has gone out there. He's talked about this publicly. He has visited the doctors there. So that's, you know, that's a pretty strong endorsement, um, that the CIA leadership is finally taking this seriously. You know, you mentioned as well that, uh, the numbers of these, these victims is growing. And as you said, this is continuing to this day. I don't know where these are happening or what part of the world or parts of the world these attacks are happening, but I do know that there's been some discussion about this happening here in the U.S. A couple of people have said that they have experienced these very same symptoms that you experienced in Moscow here in Washington and in suburbs of Washington. And I guess one of the questions I would ask is, based on just your knowledge of of this, and this this illness, this this attack, and being a victim of it, um, is enough being done to to deal with whoever's doing this? Well, well, what a great question. Well, first and foremost, I will say that 
you know, I have met with uh, uh, some of the victims um, uh, who were attacked in the United States. And, I, and I'll say, you know, I, look, I'm not privy to any of the classified information. I haven't had access to classified information since I left in July of 2019. And even then, um, I was in the retirement program. And so, so I, I don't know exactly what the U.S. government knows. I do know that the individuals, the symptoms they have reported are absolutely consistent with what I and others, uh, uh, you know, have, have gone through. So I'll just, I'll just say that there. Has the U.S. government done enough? Well, I, I think that there's been a, a sea change in the attitude at the CIA. I've, I've mentioned this, and, and Director Burns has has made this a personal priority. So there's resources, there's personnel being put against this problem. Uh, but that, but I still think there's there needs to be more of a whole of government approach. For example, at the State Department, you know, I've talked to some of the state victims, and while Director Burns has met with with all of the victims of this at CIA, that's an extraordinary statement. He has met personally with the victims, and that really means a lot to to us. But Secretary Blinken at State has not met with any. Um, I think State Department does not has not put the the resources and the personnel towards the problem. So why? there's an issue there. But why is that? Um, that's a that's a great question. I, I don't know, but it's clear that they are struggling. You know, a, there was a letter written by 21 State Department officers several months ago, victims of of uh, of similar attacks, um, and they were pleading uh, for State Department to take this more seriously. I think the office that they have put together is small. It's under resourced, understaffed. And so ultimately, you have uh, different organizations, you know, operating kind of at a different speed, and that has to change. And, and and I think it will. I mean, National Security Council is very focused on this, but you know, while well, and, and I will say that DOD is is taking this seriously as well. So I'll praise my or, own organization, my old organization. I'm sorry, CIA. I didn't have that same level of confidence, you know, during the last administration. I do now. Yeah. Um, I'll praise DOD, uh, but I think State Department has a long way to go, and that's important because, yes. of course. Uh, overseas mission is run by, you know, the chief of mission is the ambassador. Yes. There's a regional medical officer. Uh, that's the chief doctor. There's a regional security officer. It's a dipl diplomatic security uh, uh, agent. If they're not on board with this, you know, kind of the rest of the U.S. government agencies are going to suffer. So we got to get everybody really up on uh, up on the same on board and, and, and working off the same sheet of music. Yeah. You know, you have said something that's very important. This is a key thing. And I'm, I don't want to dump on or beat up on State Department here because I know some very fine people who work there and have worked there throughout the years. It is an agency that I think is un, unparalleled around the world, um, just based on what it does, what it is, and, and what it you know what it represents. But I have to say, I've asked State Department dozens of times since this administration has come in questions about this and other things. Right. I've asked for interviews with Secretary Blinken. And the can's been kicked down the road, been asked yep. about other things that have to do with very serious issues like this, and sometimes no response. But here's the thing. You mentioned that they have to step up, and it, it's my hope that they will, because what you mentioned is a very critical issue. And there are organizations and people out here that want to cover and report what's happening because that's that's critical in in getting attention and 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 resources focused on this very serious thing that you and other folks are facing, especially the right. people that are out there in the field for state um, that needs to be dealt with. So I'm hopeful that your 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 comments there will resonate with someone and maybe maybe trigger some kind of change there. Well, well, JJ, how are we going to get people to go overseas if if they're they're subject to these attacks? Because let me also throw something in there. It's not just officers, it's their families as well. Yes. This is happening around the world. And so so ultimately, you know, in my view, this is this is going to cause and is causing a chill amongst the overseas workforce. 
And until state gets on board, you know, we're going to have some serious problems. And so, you know, this, this has to do with the fundamental pact we made, I, you know, I made with my leadership, you know, so, so when I went overseas, uh, uh, you know, for CIA, I did some very interesting things with the U.S. government. You know, we, we, you and I have talked in the past, you know, I was involved probably in every major covert action program in the Middle East. They asked me to do some interesting things in, to protect this country. But in return, I always, I always hoped that they would have my back if I got jammed up, if something happened to me, particularly on, in, you know, health-wise. Uh, and, and, so, and, and so that, that pact has to extend, uh, you know, to all levels of government. And, and while, you know, CIA did not, frankly, uphold that pact with me when I got sick and I begged for help, they are now, they are much better. They're treating our people better. They're putting resources on this issue. State Department's got to come up and, and do the same thing, because if not, you know, who's going who's gonna to raise their hand and serve? And so I worry about this. And, and that's why I've been very vocal in my, in my you know, very pointed criticism of state. Um, I get messages all the time from State Department, serving State Department officials, telling me, you know, how important it is that, that we have to kind of, you know, keep at it, uh, uh, you know, publicly on this issue. And, and uh, as far as I'm concerned, until I see progress, I'm, I'm going to continue talking about it. Well, good on you for doing that. And we're here to listen. Uh, looking uh, more uh, towards those challenges you were talking about that the U.S. is facing and uh, the entire country, um, specifically State Department and U.S. national security, you know, we've talked a little bit about Russia. There's some other things that are taking place right now, uh, including the withdrawal from Afghanistan or the retrograde, as it's called in military terms, and what that means down the road. But also, um, you know, there's this issue of um, what what the world thinks of the U.S. after right. what took place with the last administration and so many things, especially as far as Russia goes. So what do you think are the challenges moving forward? Oh, you know, how much time do we have? So, you know, but, but no, no, I think this is a really important point because, you know, President Biden was, you know, certainly came into office with the promise to, to kind of restore American credibility. I was very critical uh, of, of the Trump administration for really, really kind of pulling back on our alliances, for doing things that really hurt our standing globally. Um, and so, so President Biden has taken some, some steps to, you know, to restore um, you know, try, try to restore the faith in the NATO alliance, obviously, you know, his, his trip to Europe, you know, before the Geneva summit, but he's faced with a lot of challenges. And I, and I think, you know, you know, make no mistake, you know, when you're a president, you know, everything's on your plate. So he wakes up in the morning and, and you have a Russia, which, you know, is still kind of messing with us in terms of, you know, cyber attacks or ransomware, you know, so, so we're going to have to come up with a, with a response um, with, uh, you know, with, a, with an active defense uh, or proactive in which we finally are able to deter Russia from doing this. Um, that's a huge challenge. Um, you think of China, uh, you know, which is probably our, you know, our biggest strategic adversary. How is the U.S. government positioned? Does the intelligence community have enough China speakers? Is the U.S. Navy, you know, uh, are we going to be able to operate in the, in the Pacific? Um, huge challenges uh, ahead. And you take a look at Afghanistan, and, and, you know, I think that's, that's painful for a lot of us. I mean, I'm, I'm, I, you know, I have so many mixed feelings on this. I have, you know, uh, you know, friends of mine who have been killed there. I served there for a long time. I was, you know, again, I was a base chief there um, for a solid year. I went in after 9-11, you know, in March of 02, not, not in the first teams, but, but early on. Uh, and so, so ultimately, I worry that, that you know, what you, the, the pictures we see, you know, uh, in the media of Afghanistan crumbling in front of our eyes, you know, how do we, how do we obtain uh, you know, uh, uh, partners in the future, if they see the U.S. in effect, you know, just 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 closing up shop. Not to say we should have stayed there forever, but but why not 2,000, 2,500 troops? Why not a residual force? And, and so, 
you know, there's there's a lot of challenges uh, ahead for the United States. Um, we haven't even talked about Iran. You know, the, the news broke yesterday about, you know, a, a rather incredible Iranian plot to, in, 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 in effect, render a dissident from the United States to Iran. Um, so, you know, the Biden administration has its has its plates full. And, uh, and I'll tell you one thing, I think that a lot of people, you know, were hoping that that, you know, a, a return to some kind of normalcy on the diplomatic front and national security front with a new administration that they would hope that would that would occur. But the world doesn't cooperate. Our enemies don't just, you know, take a knee as well. And so Biden administration has a lot of challenges and uh, and, uh, and it's, it's going to be a rocky road because that's the that's the nature of the world that we live in right now. It is indeed. And thank you for mentioning um, the situation involving Iran, because it's really interesting the, there, there was an indictment that came out on Tuesday right. about uh, an attempt to uh, kidnap a journalist from Brooklyn, render her back to Iran via Venezuela. And in the indictment, there was a name mentioned. And that name sounded very familiar to me. And I couldn't really place the name. So I went back and looked at my files. The name was Jamshid Sharmad. And I went back and looked at my files and I realized that I had interviewed him in 2011. And he told me on that day in 2011 that the Iranian government had tried to kill him in 2009, that the police in L.A. had notified him that that's what was happening. And he told me it's kind of eerie now that they would never give up. They would never stop. And he was eventually tricked into leaving the U.S. last year. And he was eventually successfully captured and is now in prison in an undisclosed location in Iran. So the U.S. has some serious work to do. The CIA is on the front lines of that work. And the kind of groundwork that you and some of your other colleagues have done, have laid, uh, is invaluable. I'm very grateful that you would take some time to talk to us today. Before you go, I would like to ask if there's anything else you'd like to share. No, thanks, JJ. Thanks for having me on. I love having these discussions. I mean, you know, I could I could talk for hours on this. Um, you know, look, ultimately, I think I'm excited about the book. You know, uh, Clarity in Crisis was something that was therapeutic for me to write in my retirement. Um, you know, these are principles that that are, you know, that I want the American people to look at, not just from me as a, a former intelligence officer, but that they can uh, employ as well. And really, it's, a, you know, to me, it was a book, uh, you know, it's about a love affair that I had w- with the with the intelligence business. I mean, this was not a nine to five job. This was, a, you know, a way of life for me. And, and, you know, I talk a lot in the book about my kids, um, about my wife, uh, about family, uh, about so many things that were really personal to me. And so, so you know, I, I just I hope that people read the book, you know, understand and, and, and enjoy and, and maybe employ the principles, but also understand that this was kind of my way of, of, of talking about an organization that I felt was indispensable that I really was a part of. And, and despite my, you know, my medical issues that, that, you know, are so prominent now when you, you know, when, you know, when my name's come up at the end of my career, that's not the way I want it to be remembered. I'd much rather be remembered as, as, a, as, as, a, you know, as a leader who, um, who kind of, you know, in the end wrote a book that, that I hope can help a lot of people kind of get a feel for, for what we did. Well, where I come from, they say, may the work I've done speak for me. And I think that work you've done definitely speaks loudly and clearly for you. So thank you again for your service, your work. Thank you for this book. And thank you for taking time to chat today. Thanks, JJ. Great chat as always. Thanks. That was Mark Polymeropoulos, decorated, retired CIA senior operations officer. One of the things we mentioned in this podcast was the situation with Iran and that there was recently an attempt 
foiled attempt to kidnap an American journalist to take them overseas. Masih Alinejad was lucky because the FBI uncovered the plot before they could kidnap her. But this man... They told me they have enough reason to believe that my life was in danger. Jamshid Sharmad wasn't so lucky. An interview from 10 years ago told us everything we needed to know about what was going to happen to him and to Alinejad. That and more coming up on our next episode. In the meantime, if you have questions about the program or comments, send me an email. You can reach me at jgreen at wtop.com. That's the letter J, the color green, one word, at whiskeytangooscarpapa.com. jgreen at wtop.com. Also, we invite you to follow us on Twitter. We're at T-U-S-A Podcast. That's at Tango Uniform Sierra Alpha Podcast. And we'd like to invite you as well to subscribe to our podcast. And if you want more national security information, sign up for my newsletter. It's called Inside the Skiff, and you can sign up at WTOP.com slash alerts. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. Good morning, good afternoon, and good night! And welcome to T-Pain's Nappy Boy Radio Podcast. The most fun you'll ever listen to while you're folding your clothes. Now let's get this straight. This is not your average podcast. T-Pain's Nappy Boy Radio is super fun, super crazy. It's pretty much an in-your-face conversation. That's the good thing about us. We don't do interviews. We do conversations. All of my guests, all of my co-hosts, we chill. We drink, we play games, we have the song of the week, we have the creative curse word of the week, as long as you're having fun as our guest. Speaking of guests, each week I'm going to go through my whole contact list and dive head first into the world of music, gaming, exotic cars, tech, strippers probably, doctors probably, probably strippers that are only stripping so they can pay for tuition to become a doctor. You never know. My wife is a certified bartender. She'll make you a drink while you're here. We'll get you drunk and make you play VR after. It's a lot going on. But that's what it's all about over here at T-Pain's Nappy Boy Radio Podcast. See you soon, baby! Now, stay tuned for the latest headlines from the Associated Press.